Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and joining me today as co-host is Chad Sarudi. Our guest today is Tanya Harrison. Tanya is a planetary scientist and the manager of science programs at Planet Labs. As science manager, Tanya promotes the use of Planet Labs Earth imagery for scientific missions such as studying climate change and population shifts. Tanya is also widely known as the Professional Martian. She has been extremely involved with Martian space missions such as the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Curiosity Rover. Tanya is heavily involved in space outreach as well. She speaks regularly as a specialist in Martian terrain and organizes events that help educate the public about Mars. In today's conversation with Tanya, we will be covering both her current role at Planet Labs and her lifelong passion for Mars. It is our honor to have her on the show, and we are pleased to welcome you to SEDScast Episode 6, Imaging Our Planets with Tanya Harrison. Welcome to SETScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me today as co-host is Chad Cerruti. Chad, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. What's up, guys? Chad and I are going to be talking to our guest today, who is Tanya Harrison. We're incredibly excited to have her on the show. Tanya, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. We're going to get through a bunch of different topics today. Uh, Can we start off by just giving some context to our listeners on who you are, where you're from, and what you work on? Sure. Um, So currently I'm the manager of science programs at the federal arm of Planet Labs, which is a commercial Earth observing company that operates the largest fleet of Earth observing satellites in Earth orbit right now. Um, But my whole background actually before coming to Planet has been in Mars. So I tend to call myself a professional Martian. Um, I've spent the last decade working in mission operations and uh, science for the Curiosity rover, the Opportunity rover, Perseverance, uh, and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter working on different camera systems. Um, So my background is a mix of astronomy and physics, and then uh, geology, specifically geomorphology. So the the study of shapes of things and what that tells us about the history of a particular area on a planet. Okay, so yeah, we'll definitely get into, I think, all those topics. Before we get there, though, can you give us some background on when you first got interested in space and what led you to pursue, you know, working in the industry? I've been interested in space since I was about five years old, a confluence of a bunch of different things at a young age. Mostly, I tend to attribute it to the movie Big Bird in Japan that I saw when I was four or five, where Big Bird gets to meet the Japanese mythological princess of the moon, Kaguya And for some reason... I thought that was so cool. I started going outside every night and staring at the moon, which is also how I taught myself that the moon moves because it was not in the same place a few nights after the first night I went to go look at it. Um, But around that same time, Voyager was doing its uh, last bits of the grand tour of our solar system. So my grandfather had given me issues of Sky and Telescope and National Geographic to kind of stoke that interest. My parents watched a lot of Star Trek, so I got obsessed with that. And I really loved the Magic School Bus books, but particularly Magic School Bus Lost the Solar System. So my family wasn't like directly encouraging me to be excited about space, but it was something that I just happened to be surrounded by in a lot of different ways. And I think that really encouraged it over time. Awesome. 
yeah, that's great to hear. Everyone has a different story about how they got interested in space. And it's it's crazy to see the, the range. Like some people don't get into it until college. Other people have always been passionate about it since, you know, the age of five, like you said. So that's great to hear. Yeah. Even Big Bird inspires people sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, can you walk us through how you got involved with SEDS? Obviously, now you sit on the board of advisors for SEDS USA. Were you involved uh, in college with SEDS or how did you first get involved with the organization? I was not. I'm not sure I even knew that SEDS existed while I was a student. Um, I was so busy as an undergraduate. I went to classes and then I would go to work full time and then go back to school at night to take more classes. So I had absolutely no time for any kind of extracurricular activities or fun at all. (laughs) I was just working all the time. So if there was a SEDS chapter at my university, I was completely unaware of it. Um, So I learned about it when I was in Canada, actually. During my PhD, I I learned that SEDS Canada was a thing. Um, And I thought, oh, man, it would have been great to know this was a thing when I was a student if if it was around in my university. Um, And so I got involved pretty late in the game. And by then, I was a pretty non-traditional student. I had already worked in industry and then come back to school to get a PhD. So I was already sort of like an advisor type person to students at that point. Um, And then I was asked to join the Board of Advisors just a few months ago um, here in the U.S. So I'm really glad that I can be part of this organization that seems to have done a lot of great things, even though it wasn't something that I was involved with when I was in school. Awesome. Yeah, we're super glad to have you as as a part of the organization. I thought you had a great speech last year at Space Vision. Uh, Everyone that was there remembers that. And then obviously, now that you're a Board of Advisor, it's fun that you're able to, you know, be involved with SEDS and give some feedback and advice for students and also come on the podcast. So Chad, if you want to take over, we'll, we'll walk through some of your stuff at NASA because I think Chad had some interesting questions about that. You want to get started? Yeah, sure. So you worked on a bunch of different really interesting projects all related to Mars. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was and your work with that? Sure. So Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter got to Mars in 2006 and is still operating today. So it's like the third oldest orbiter that's still operational. And I worked on two of the cameras on board. One is called the Context Camera, or CTX. And that is a panchromatic, so grayscale, six-meter resolution imager that takes large pictures of the planet as context for the high-rise camera that more people might be familiar with, which takes those really stunning color pictures that you've probably seen all over the internet for the last decade plus from Mars. Um, those pictures are very small though for high rise. So to help figure out where we want to take images with it and put those images in context, that's why we have CTX. And at this point it's gotten essentially global coverage of Mars at six meter resolution at this point. And a lot of it more than once because we've been there for so long. Uh, the, the other camera that I worked on was the Mars Color Imager, or Marcy, and this is a weather monitoring instrument that takes a full color mosaic of Mars basically every single day of the mission. And it continues the weather monitoring that we did with the wide angle Mars orbiter camera on Mars Global Surveyor. So we actually have a full color image of Mars for almost every day from 1997 through now from monitoring the weather with these two cameras. And I think a lot of Mars scientists don't even know that data set exists. It's it's quite extraordinary. That's awesome. Uh, Where's that data set available? Um, They're all in the NASA Planetary Data System, the PDS. 
Uh, and some of them are posted online on the Mail and Space Science Systems website. So that's actually where I worked on these missions. It's a subcontractor that builds cameras for different Mars missions. But they also do, in most cases, the mission operations for the cameras as well. Not always, but for most of them. Really cool. Um, did your work with MRO or Marcy reveal anything about Mars? Did you learn anything new from them? It did. So the coolest thing was a lot of the time... I was one of the first, if not the first humans to ever see the pictures that we would get back from CTX in particular. My job was to pick what pictures CTX would take on a weekly basis. And then every day we would look at those pictures when they came back down through the Deep Space Network. Marcy, since it just takes images in the background all the time, there's not a lot of interaction other than just looking at the images and seeing how the weather has changed. But for CTX... Um, I found a bunch of new gully flows on the surface of Mars, which are these landslides that we think might have been formed today on Mars with the help of a little bit of liquid water. It's a, mm -hmm. slightly controversial. Some people think they're dry landslides, but um, that could be a whole podcast in itself as to what's going <laughs> on there. So I won't go into the details, but if you're interested, you can look up online. My master, my PhD thesis goes into this in hundreds of pages of detail. <laughs> um and I also found a, uh, a humongous channel system in the northern plains of Mars from a gigantic um, impact crater called Leo, which is one of the youngest old, sorry, the youngest large impact basins on Mars. And so it looks like this crater, when it formed, must have either released a bunch of groundwater that was at the impact site before the, the crater formed, or... There was a lot of ice there and the heat and the shock from the impact caused that ice to melt, get incorporated into the what we call the ejective blanket of the crater. And then that water essentially soaked out over time, like leaked out of the ejecta and ended up forming these channels. And this happens on Earth if you have like a really wet landslide. Eventually, that water kind of percolates out of the landslide and you start seeing like little rivers essentially coming out of the toes of them. And so... The, these channels cover the area of basically the, the state of New Mexico. It's it's absolutely massive. And we had never seen it before because the weather in the Northern Plains on Mars is quite bad for most of the year. So it's hard to image. Um, but we, we planned a lot. Like part of my job with CTX was to do campaign planning. So I looked through all the historical images to try to figure out what time of year in given places on Mars was the weather clear enough for us to be able to image. And then we would target like as many images as we could in those windows to make sure that we got clear atmosphere mosaics of as much of the planet as possible. And that was fun. That felt like putting together a puzzle or like doing detective work, trying to figure out, oh, this part of Mars is only clear for three weeks out of the year or something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting work. That sounds, honestly, it sounds like a lot of fun to be able to do that. Did you always know that you wanted to work on Mars specifically? Is that a place that you were interested in observing more so than, say, of like Earth observing satellites? It wasn't at first. My my general space interest honed into Mars specifically when the Pathfinder mission landed. And I saw videos and images of the Sojourner rover driving around. And I thought it was just incredible that we could send a robot to another planet and drive it around and study rocks. And, and it just blew my mind as, as a kid. Before that, my big love in the solar system actually was Miranda, one of the moons of uh, Uranus, which is very, very strange. It looks like it was just pulled apart and shoved together again and has gigantic cliffs. And 
it was my favorite level to play in the Magic School Bus Lost in the Solar System computer game back nice. in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know very much about Miranda because we've only ever seen it when Voyager 2 flew by. So you know, I'm hoping for a Cassini level mission to Uranus at some point to figure out what else is going on with all the weird moons out there. So then you were doing all this work before you got your PhD. Did you already know that you wanted to go back and uh, get your PhD in geology or did this work actually inspire that? It's kind of a complicated question. When I, my plan had always been to get a PhD, but I did my bachelor's and then went straight into a master's program, but I had started out in astronomy and physics and I didn't find out until the end of my junior year that to study Mars, I actually should have been a geologist instead of an astronomer, but I didn't want to pay to spend an extra year of university to get another bachelor's degree. So I went ahead and finished astronomy and physics, and then I switched to geology in my master's program because it wasn't really feasible to go straight into a PhD in geology without an undergraduate degree in that field. Um, but my my experience in my master's was quite miserable to the point where when I finished, I didn't think I wanted to get a PhD anymore. So I started just emailing people randomly trying to see if they needed a data processing lackey because I discovered I really liked the technical side of things. I had done a lot of work with um, Hubble Space Telescope data and some ground-based telescopes in my astronomy career, and I really liked getting my hands dirty in the data. So uh, I wanted to find a way to keep being involved in missions like that. And that's how I, I found out about the job at at Malin Space Science Systems. One of those people I had emailed at a university suggested them, and they just happened to be hiring. And I got the job there. It, it was my dream job, you know, working directly on missions. I loved every single day. It was so surreal. But I ended up being really severely harassed at that job to the point where I literally applied for a job at Starbucks because I I didn't even want to be in the field anymore. And I didn't get the job at Starbucks. Um, apparently, they don't want people with master's degrees in geology, who would have guessed? <laughs> um, so I had ended up applying for a community college teaching position in astronomy at a college near where I lived in San Diego at the time. And then I also around the time I was considering leaving, one of my colleagues on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter got a job as a professor at the University of Western Ontario. And I had applied there for a PhD four years earlier, got in, and then turned down the offer when I got the job offer from Malin. So uh, I just emailed them back and I was like, hey, you guys admitted me before. Um, no hard feelings, right? You want to let me in this time? <laughs> And they were like, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. You have so much more experience now. Like, come on in. So um, I got in and decided to go back. And my plan then was, well, I'll go get a PhD and I'll come back, still work on mission ops. But maybe instead of working at a subcontractor, I'll work at JPL directly because we spent a lot of time working in mission operations physically at JPL, particularly for Curiosity. And I loved the atmosphere there and the people and it was just something that I really wanted to be a part of. And then, you know, I'm sure as we talk about planet and other things, obviously my career path did not end up going that way. I've learned to just not make a lot of plans and take all these unexpected pathways instead. <laughs> yeah. So we live in a world where somebody will get turned down from Starbucks, but they can get into PhD programs and go work at NASA and work on satellites orbiting Mars. Yeah. You never know where your life is going to end up. <laughs> 
So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your work right now. So what is your current role at Planet Labs? So my current role, it's essentially business development and strategy, working with the scientific community to help them figure out how to use planet Earth observation imagery in their workflows. Um, I a few years ago, I became a science ambassador for Planet while I was working at Arizona State University during my postdoc. Uh, and they had this program where if you were doing something cool, you could write a proposal and they would give you free data in exchange for essentially evangelizing them. And so I was doing some work with a Mars analog site up at Houghton Crater, which is in the Canadian Arctic. And as soon as I learned about Planet, I just thought that they were really, really cool. And I wanted to work for them. Um, I had learned from my time in industry and my time in academia that I was much more entrepreneurially mindset rather than academically mindset. I, I didn't like the fact that in academia, it's one, it's essentially a pyramid scheme. <laughs> we talk about that more if you like. Um, and two, whether or not you are a good scientist is not reflected in your funding rates or anything like that in academia. You could be an absolutely brilliant scientist, but the funding rates from NASA, National Science Foundation, places like that, they're so low at this point. You're lucky if it's like an 8 to 13% funding rate. So you could be amazing, but you're competing against dozens, if not hundreds of other amazing scientists. And so it's almost a crapshoot at this point. And especially if you're working at a public university, your salary and, and raises are not tied to your performance. They're tied to, you know, if the board of advisors or the, the board of regents, I forget what they're called, uh, if your state essentially decides that you deserve a raise that year or not. Um, whereas in industry, like, I feel like it's much more driven by your desire and your your motivation. Like if you work really hard, generally speaking, that will pay off. You might get a promotion or you might get a bonus or you can advance much more quickly than you would in academia. I feel like now I'm rambling off of the initial question that you asked me. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. I mean, that's all relevant to a lot of students and sets are really um, entrepreneurial driven. I know Owen is especially interested in that. So it is interesting to hear and get that perspective of the differences between academia and industry. It's easier to forge your own path on the industry side. And I'm so amazed to see you know, mission managers at places like SpaceX. And these are recent grads or young professionals who aren't even 30 yet. And that's essentially unheard of on the NASA side. So, or in academia, you know, if you're working on a mission, a lot of times you don't work at NASA. You, you might be at a university, for example. So your opportunity for career advancement is so much faster as opposed to doing a postdoc and then maybe a second or a third postdoc and becoming an adjunct or an associate professor and then hoping maybe you go up for tenure and you still might not get tenure because you haven't had enough success in your grants because the funding rates are so low. And it's this vicious cycle. And I I mean, I I have friends who are, you know, in their mid to late 40s who have done multiple postdocs. Uh, they're having trouble finding faculty jobs. And again, it's absolutely no reflection on their ability as a scientist. These are all brilliant people, but they're just there's not enough funding and there aren't enough jobs. And so I've actually started, like, I try to counsel students and figure out 
like one, do you need a PhD for what you want to do? Because there's a huge opportunity cost for that and mental health cost and stress and all that kind of stuff. Um, and two, like, what are your options if you don't want to go into academia? Because there's still a very toxic mindset of if you don't go into academia, not so much on the on the engineering side, but certainly as a scientist, if you don't go into academia, you're you're kind of flagged as a failure. And I really, really want to change that mindset, at least for the students, even if it doesn't change for the professors, because the professors are the ones that have been successful. They, they're indoctrinated. The system worked for them. But for a lot of these students, it's not working. And so I want them to know that there are other options out there and that choosing one of those other options is by no means a failure. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think with the engineering, it's a little different, but I've seen, you know, I have friends that are in more science-based things and that there's definitely more of that um, culture of that reciprocity of going back into academia and, you know, the recycle repeating. Um, As someone that is now in industry and has a a decent amount of autonomy, what are you working on at Planet Labs and what's kind of your goal in being there? What are you trying to achieve? It's a big question. Um, My goal is to get the scientific community to recognize that this data set exists. Step one, um, Planet is really well known in the new space industry because it's one of the big success stories in terms of you know acquisitions and becoming successful. Um, but in the science community, it's not all that well known yet. Um, and it's a really literally world-changing data set. I mean, you have near daily coverage of the entire landmass of the Earth at three meter resolution, that that is mind blowing. Um, the the amount of change that you can see from both the human scale to the natural scale, looking at the effects of climate change, monitoring human rights abuses, looking at crops to be able to proactively take steps to fight famine, or um, right now there's huge pl- plagues of locusts coming across Africa, and they're trying to fight that with data like this. I I want people to recognize that this data exists and they can incorporate it with things like the publicly available data that we have from the NASA Landsat program and the European Space Agency's fleet of Sentinel satellites. Like, let's fuse all these together and start really unlocking some of the full potential of all of the data sets together to figure out how we can best address some of the things that we need to be tackling right now, like climate change. What are some of the obstacles to explaining that? Uh, what Planet Labs does? I would say explaining it isn't an obstacle. It's more getting the scientific community to understand the commercial sector. They're so used to free data sets from places like NASA and ESA that the idea of paying for data is a little bit foreign, even though the data is extremely different. Um, With Landsat, you might be getting coverage uh, every few days or every couple of weeks, but it's 30 meter resolution, not three meter. Um, and that tends that can cause some problems because if you're only getting one or two images a month, they might be cloudy. So your clear images, you might have a handful of clear images of any particular spot in a year compared to if you're shooting a place like, let's say, Seattle or Southeast Asia, where it rains a lot. If you shoot that every day, you have much more chances of peering through the clouds to see the things that you want to see. So coming around to the idea of the commercial sector and and why these things exist and that sometimes they cost money, I I think has been the biggest challenge. Sure. Are there any like aha statements that you make to people that typically 
has them realize that, hey, I might have to pay for this data, but it is so much better than what I'm currently using. Are there any, even if it's like a one-liner or a thing you need to explain, does it, do you have any of those? I think it's more showing the use cases. When you can show things that people have done that would be impossible with any other data set, that's when people's brains start clicking. Um, when I worked at ASU, part of my role was I was trying to evangelize planted data on campus as one of the science ambassadors. And people, I don't think, really understood the utility until we had one of the founders, uh, Will Marshall, come out to campus and give a talk where he showed a ton of animations of fine scale change over time. And you heard audible gasps from people in the audience. And then during the Q&A, hands just went up like wildfire. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? Could I use it for this? Do you have any data here? So once you see it, your brain starts to click. But I, I don't think until you actually start looking at the data, it fully sinks in just what is there because there's so much of it and it's so different from anything that people are used to working with in the field. Yeah. Uh, I want to focus mostly on the science, but I want to ask one more technical question just to give some context to people that might not be familiar with the planet satellites. And we're talking about this three meter resolution and it's coming from a, a relatively small satellite. Could you give context as to how big these satellites are and how the size has affected the number you can put up? Absolutely. So our satellites are three U CubeSats. So they're about the size of a loaf of bread before you extend the little solar panels. Uh, we call them doves. They're, they're quite adorable. Mm -hmm. Um, and because they're so small, we actually build them in-house. Uh, it's essentially a fully vertically integrated thing. We build them in the basement of a building in San Francisco. And then um, we launch what we call flocks, flocks of doves, on um, basically any rocket we can hitch a ride on. So uh, we've got some launching with Rocket Labs soon. We, we're about to launch on Vega, hopefully this weekend. We've launched on SpaceX, um, PSLV in India. And we launch anywhere from you know, less than 10 to our biggest launch so far was 88 satellites in a single launch. And right now, we have over 150 operational satellites in orbit, and we've launched over 300. Sweet. Yeah. So I just wanted to give people context as to like why Planet is so different from the other companies and how you're getting such a great data set. And a lot of it comes from... A, the fact that you're able to get three meter resolution on a 3U CubeSat, which is ridiculous. Um, but B, that because they're so small, you have so many of them in the air you're talking about. You know, I think Planet said they're close to getting the entire world every day, right? In terms of images. That's right. Yeah. There's uh, there's obviously variability, you know, if it's really cloudy or the way orbits drift from time to time. But uh, we get near daily global coverage of the entire landmass of the Earth. We don't do open ocean imaging. Um, just because there's some limitations there, but for the, the land mass out to about 15 kilometers off the coast anywhere. Who are some of your main customers? Um, there are a lot of different applications. We, we have a lot of uptake in like agriculture, um, the energy sector. Uh, so like sometimes people will look at solar panels or areas where you might want to build solar panels. Um, huge uptake in the research community in terms of things like change in the Arctic, because having such a fine scale data set is really, really valuable for that. Oh, disaster relief. That's another huge one. So uh, we're actually, I think we were the first commercial earth observing company to become part of what's called the disaster charter. So if a disaster is declared anywhere in the world, um, like the hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, um, last year, the year before, uh, if there's a major earthquake or a typhoon, 
the charter gets enacted and we release all the data that we have available around the time of the disaster so that um, first responder groups can start putting together uh, relief and aid and figure out, you know, where roads are washed out versus versus places that are still accessible, um, tracking the changes over time, hopefully, you know, before, during and after the disaster, but sometimes it's difficult. Like if you've had a hurricane, it's you know, obviously generally pretty cloudy. <laughs> but again, sometimes you get to peer through the clouds since you have such high temporal coverage. So um, that really pays off there in a lot of cases. Nice. Yeah. As somebody who lives in Florida and I deal with hurricanes all the time, that's really powerful and really useful technology to have. Yeah. I think it's awesome. You guys like are willing to release that data in those situations where it's, it's, you know, helping people that are really in need. And I think that's a lot of the vision of Planet, and that's what really drew me to them in the first place. The idea that this was a company that was really driven by a vision and ethics and like the, the model of the company is see change, change the world. And I would say that the founders are, are, I'm not speaking on their behalf, so this is like unofficial, but I feel like this message really resonates with a lot of people internally. Like they are at Planet because they really do believe that being able to watch change over time is a way that we can change the world. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's one of the awesome things about the um, like Earth observation satellites is that they do have a real drastic effect on life on Earth. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about outreach and get back into Mars a little bit. Um, so professional Martian is something you've been doing, but you've obviously been passionate about Mars for some time. Can you walk us through some of the stuff you do outside of work that's related to Mars? Oh, that's basically all of the rest of my life. Cause I don't sleep or do anything else anymore. <laughs> um, I, I do a lot of different things. Um, I travel around giving talks at conferences or on panels about Mars or working in mission ops or career paths toward things like that. Um, I'm very active on Twitter in terms of trying to spread the word about Mars, which is really how all of this stuff got started. Uh, I don't really know how I became a thing on Twitter, but somehow I became a thing on Twitter <laughs> for people that are interested in Mars. And from that, well, I guess I do know how it happened. It is a combination of the Martian becoming a very popular movie while I lived in Canada. And so that makes you a big fish in a small pond. There aren't a ton of Mars experts in Canada. So if anybody in the country was looking for a Mars expert to ask about the Martian, they all ended up talking to me. Hmm. And so I, I feel very grateful for that. So I feel bad because sometimes students ask like, you know, what are, what's your advice for being successful in this area? And my answer is, hope that Hollywood makes a blockbuster film about the thing that you work on. <laughs> if Matt Damon does what you do for a living, it's perfect. Yeah. If, if you really want to, you know, become a famous, uh, I don't know, archaeologist, like hope there's a new blockbuster Indiana Jones movie or something like that. <laughs> but I, I also try to put together events. So, um, I'm one of the co-organizers of the Women in Space Conference, which is not Mars specific, but it is. we do deal with a lot of subjects in terms of like getting women into the field and, and retaining women in the fields. Um, and I try to do a lot of outreach to non-traditional audiences because I, I feel like that's kind of a neglected area. We have a lot of outreach to kids. We have a lot of outreach that just kind of resonates with people that are already interested in space. But I want people that are not already fans of space to get excited about it and understand 
why do we want to go to Mars? Why do we send all these satellites to orbit the Earth and and other places in the solar system? Why, why does all of this matter? And why are we using taxpayer money for it? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, planet's probably a good example of, of why space is useful. What are the other examples you show to someone that's not interested in space as of now? It's definitely trickier when you move beyond Earth observation because that's something easy to tie directly to people. You know, we want to know what the weather is doing. We need GPS satellites. This is why Earth observing is useful so we can monitor change over time. Looking at other planets, it's not necessarily a direct tieback. It's not like it's going to benefit you directly in your day-to-day life knowing what the atmosphere of Saturn is like, for example. But these are things that help us understand Earth in the context of the universe how is Earth different and why in our solar system and beyond? Why is Earth unique in terms of life? Or is it unique? You know, that's why we're looking for life on Mars and maybe Europa or inside Enceladus. Um, and these are also missions that motivate people. You know, people get interested in space and they might fall in love with something like Mars as a kid and then end up working on climate change like me. So it's not necessarily something that is like, well, I like space, so I'm going to do something that doesn't benefit Earth. It's This is an inspirational gateway for a lot of people to see something bigger than themselves. And then it motivates them to do something that might be related to these missions or might be something completely different. Or maybe they don't even go into STEM at all. Maybe they become a musician that writes music inspired by the stars, or they become um, a painter that paints beautiful pictures of nebulae based on Hubble images, you know, whatever space means to you, they can find some way to incorporate that into their life. That's awesome. I think that's one of the surprisingly common themes that we've had with all of our guests is pointing out the variety of different things you can do relevant to space. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that the space industry also needs accountants and also needs pretty much every other job that there is. And so my pitch to people is always just that if you're going to do something like that, you may as well do it on something that's really crazy, really cutting edge. So that's awesome to hear that you're like actively working to help educate people about space and and get them excited about it. We're going to shift gears one last time to student questions. So these are questions submitted by said students. Um, and we don't have a ton of time, but we'll get through a couple of them. The The first one I really liked was talking about the pixel resolution. And they're asking if planets planning on getting, is there an advantage? Is there any reason why we actually need lower than three meter? And is, is planet going to be able to do that eventually with a three U cube set? Or are there physics limitations? Uh, we do have a separate constellation of satellites at planet called SkySat that take 50 centimeter resolution images. There are 18 of those up right now and we're launching three more later this summer but they're not cube sats they're more they're a small sat so it's more like the size of a dishwasher instead of a loaf of bread um and that's really useful if you want to start looking at really fine scale especially human changes um the three meter resolution was specifically chosen to look at patterns of life um but you can see for example you could count cars in a parking lot but you can't distinguish a Toyota Corolla from like a Honda Accord, for example. Um, so like we can't, we, we don't track stuff like that, but you could look at overall changes. Um, whereas with 50 centimeter, you start being able to do things like identify specific ships in the water, which can be really useful um, for say uh, boats that are dealing in human trafficking, which is something that has come up before or looking at um, 
human rights abuses in places like uh, Burma and China, um, where there are religious minority groups that are being uh, persecuted right now. Uh, the higher resolution really helps with things like that. And then there's some natural changes in terms of um, uh, just climate change and then interannual changes, like things that happen from year to year, like naturally coastlines, coastlines change over time from wave action. You can see some of those at different scales when you go from 50 centimeter to three meter. Um, but there's definitely an obsession with like higher resolution is better, higher spatial resolution is better. But the trade-off of having high temporal resolution at slightly lower spatial resolution is is really still a game changer. There's a lot of stuff you can reveal with that high temporal resolution aspect. Definitely. Uh, there's a couple of Martian questions in here, as you'd probably guess. Um, so one <laughs> of them was about if you would go to Mars and the circumstances under which you would go to Mars, would you be interested in going if there wasn't a guaranteed return trip or would you want a guaranteed return trip in order to go? I mean, when it comes to space, I don't think there are ever any guarantees of safety. <laughs> um, like ideally, I would like to go to Mars. I want to go and like look at the rovers where where they're hanging out uh, just to see like it's something we built and it's on another planet. But I'm also extremely claustrophobic and I hate flying. So I don't know <laughs> if I would actually do it unless I could like take a sleeping pill for the eight months it takes to get there or we invent Star Trek style transporters that will work between planets and I could get there instantly. Yeah. If we develop a hibernation pod or something, we can get you there. Don't worry. We'll work on that as a set project. Yeah. Get on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, another question about Mars was if we ever want to try and terraform it, what methods do you think we would be able to use? That's another tricky question. It's, it's hard because Mars doesn't have a magnetic field to protect it from the atmosphere being stripped away by the solar wind. We've actually measured this for the first time now with the the MAVEN mission at Mars, which got there in 2014. And there's literally hundreds of kilograms of atmosphere lost every single day. Um, so you'd have to figure out how to like continuously replenish that while also protecting people on the surface from uh, high doses of radiation and solar flares. So I'm not sure how realistic long-term terraforming of Mars is. It might be something where we do end up having to stay confined to like cliff dwellings so that we're protected from radiation and smaller bubbles where we can actually maintain an atmosphere. Um, oh, in terms of some of the crazier ideas that have been thrown out there, like, oh, let's smash comets into Mars to give it more water. Uh I don't really know enough about them to comment on them other than a lot of them are something that would be, you know, way outside of our capability for probably hundreds of years. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fair. There's, I know Elon has specific ideas and other people have ideas, but I think it is something that's going to take a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, another question is on diversity in the space community. What are your thoughts on how we improve the diversity, whether that be gender or race or anything else? How do we go about, improving the diversity in the industry and, and how can people that are currently in it help? For folks that are currently in the industry, we need to do a better job at fostering a community that is supportive of diversity to begin with. Um, there are so many barriers to not just entry 
for a lot of different communities, um, but also staying in the field. So microaggressions, um, systemic racism, systemic sexism in a lot of cases. I mean, that's what led me to almost leave the field. Um, so we need to do a better job at like recognizing where our weaknesses are and then trying to make those better. And in general, I think for expanding the community, one of the biggest things we can do is be visible and show what the opportunities are that are out there. I've run into experience or I've, I've had conversations with some students and I ran into this in my own background coming from like a like lower middle class family. Um, the, the idea that I wanted to work in space seemed ridiculous because to them, the only job option out there was astronaut. And the reaction was, well, you're never going to be an astronaut. Like, I'm not healthy enough and I'm too short. Um, but demonstrating the full breadth of jobs that are out there for people. So if they are interested in space, helping children and parents and teachers recognize that this is a viable field for people to go into. And so we should be supportive of their enthusiasm I think can be really helpful. But the other part of that, of course, is making sure that these kids, when they're looking at these, see people that represent them in those positions. So, you know, we want little girls to look up and see women in positions of leadership. We want um, people of color to be able to look and see people of color in these positions that they're they're going for to show that this is a place where they belong and they are accepted. And it's it's certainly getting better compared to like looking at the audience in conferences when I started going 10, 15 years ago compared to now, but we still have a, a really, really long way to go. Yeah. I thought the demo two mission, uh, that live stream in particular did a really good job of showing a lot of women, a lot of people of color in the STEM field doing things related to NASA. And I know Twitter was flooded afterwards of all these little kids who are not white males, uh, really excited about space. And that was really nice to see. Yeah, there was a beautiful video. Oh gosh, I can't remember the little girl's name anymore, but a girl I think was five who was reacting to seeing uh, a black woman like talking as somebody that works at NASA and she's dancing in front of the screen so excited to see someone that looks like her doing this. And like it just brings a smile to your face to see that reaction and like recognize how important representation is. I'm not sure it's something that I – recognized myself growing up since my reaction to being told I couldn't do certain things because I was a girl was not, oh, darn, I guess I can't do them. It was more, well, that just means I'm going to be the first girl that does it. Like just because no one has doesn't mean I can't do it. But not everybody has that mentality. And it's certainly not a supportive environment to tell somebody you can't do this because you're a girl or you can't do this because you're black. You know, we we don't want that mentality. We want everybody to recognize that all of these things are open to them and and then make it an environment where they want to stay once they are there. I think that's a really good point. And I like you pointing out that like, it's awesome when people have the attitude of I'm going to be the first, but it shouldn't be that everyone has to go through that. There should be a, a more inclusive environment and you should be able to see people that look like you and sound like you in those positions so that you have someone to look up to. Uh, so the last question we always ask is advice for students. Um, so you can kind of frame this however you want, but what is your advice to students that are, you know, in SEDS or out of SEDS, but are in school and are, are looking to join the space industry in the next couple of years? The biggest piece of advice I tend to give is to be proactive. There are 
just like in academia, there are a lot of people out there looking for jobs and the space industry is really amazing. But you want to make sure that you're out there looking for the opportunities that you want or making them for yourself. So if you can, like get out to conferences and meet people in person. Uh, don't be afraid to cold email people working at companies that you're interested in or you know, approach them on Twitter. Twitter is a really great place to be able to interact with folks that are already in the field. And generally, if we're working in space, we're here because we love it and we want more people to join the, the field. So like, if anybody asks me questions, I'm so maybe overly enthusiastic <laughs> to want to help them because it's just so exciting that there are people that want to do this. So don't be afraid to go out there, find those connections, make those connections, look for places and people that are doing the things that you want to do. And if you don't see the opportunity that you want, figure out if there's a way that you can make that opportunity happen, which I'm not going to say that's easy, but it it is doable. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's really great advice. Uh, that closes out for us. Thank you, Tanya, for coming on the show. It was great to hear from you. Oh, thanks so much. All right. Well, with that, we would like to close down the discussion and we will see you all next episode.